welcome to week three of Cultivate, kind of book one. We're doing multiple little books throughout the uh, semester, so we're in week three. I've got my buddy CJ here. Hey. And we're going to be talking about uh, the third person of the Trinity. Now, here's the deal. Uh, We've been going through the Trinity, talked about Father with Derek. Rachel and I chatted about Jesus as Lord, and now we're in the third person. You probably normally know the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but you also know that we've been going through the Trinity with a kind of unique lens. So what's the name that we're using for the third person of the Trinity this week? Yeah, so this week uh, we've called it the giver of life. This is language that comes from uh, the creed, one of the early church formulations of what Christians believe. And they call him uh, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. So, so good. What with that? Yeah, and so to dig into the giver of life, uh, you know, part of this with names is... Um, to be able to capture God in language, you can't really yep. capture him in language. And no. so one of the cool ways to relate to God is to use multiple kind of ways of understanding who he is. And so, you know, Holy Spirit is a, we're going to use that term, but we're also going to kind of dive into the giver of life. So what passage are we digging into this week to help kind of bring out that giver of life theme? We went uh, full Old Testament Uh-oh. and are heading to Ezekiel 37. Wow. So one of the more famous passages in the whole Old Testament, but specifically probably the most famous passage in Ezekiel. Yeah. So this is interesting because we did the sermon, Peter's sermon from Pentecost last week. And most yep. people who are, maybe you've grown up a Christian or you know, like of Pentecostals, you know that that's kind of a, that's a big Holy Spirit Yep. moment in the Bible. Um, and it's led to, you know, Pentecostalism is a more charismatic or like, um, you know, power of the Holy Spirit kind of mm-hmm. emphasized version of the faith. So why didn't we use, why are we using the Old Testament? The Holy Spirit is like a New Testament thing, right? Yeah. You'd think that we'd probably go to the New Testament, talk about the Holy Spirit's role uh, in the Christian and in the church. Um, but if we are using this image of the Holy Spirit as the giver of life, then I think this kind of prophetic vision that Ezekiel is given in Ezekiel 37 is like the most, um, I don't know, visceral uh, image of that activity of the Holy Spirit. So this is called the Valley of the Dry Bones, where Ezekiel is given a vision of this this desolate place with dead people in it. And then um, the Lord tells Ezekiel that the Spirit is going to come and and make them alive again and make an army for the Lord. Uh, and so I thought that this uh, passage was just a fantastic um, way of demonstrating that specific uh, role of the Holy Spirit, um, both in the Christian, but then also in the Jewish people as well. So your question about, you know, why, why are we in the Old Testament? Uh, that doesn't seem like the place we find the Spirit a lot. Yeah, the the Spirit's presence in the Old Testament, it looks a little bit different than it does in the New Testament, but in some sense, it's always kind of pointing forward to the New Testament. Um, the Spirit is very much present in the Old Testament. I think especially if you're reading uh, like the Judges, um, you'll see the, the Holy Spirit. You'll also see the Spirit um, in the creation. So a couple of really important places the Spirit shows up in the Old Testament, he's pointing to what's happening in the New Testament as well. So in God is creating man and he breathes into Adam, Yeah, right? This notion of the breath um, is the word that's used for the spirit. It's a word that can mean like wind, breath, spirit. Uh, the New Testament does the same thing with the word pneuma. Yeah. You um, want to know what the Old Testament word is? I got it in my back pocket. Tell me, whip it um, out. Ruach. Ruach. Yeah. The breath of God. Also the spirit of God. Boom. That's awesome. There you go. So Ruach translated to pneuma later. 
Paul uses pneuma in the New Testament, but ruach is what you're going to find in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, the reason they use pneuma in the the New Testament, I I think, is because uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, there was this cool translation of the Old Testament made um, before the writers of the New Testament lived. It's called the Septuagint. Uh, and when they're translating the Old Testament into Greek, so these are Jews who have translated this. This isn't Christians. Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek um, in the, the the last few decades of the BCs. Um, they used the word pneuma for mm. most of these instances of Ruch. Yep. Um, so that practice just carries forward into the into the New Testament for sure. Um, so a couple of things you see them do uh, in the Old Testament. So from the very beginning, the spirit is the giver of life. He gives life to Adam. He vivifies Adam. So as Adam is being formed in the dust, vivifies. vivifies. Um, The spirit is what animates him, brings him to life. And so you see the spirit as kind of the life giving principle um, to not only humanity, but all of creation. You see the spirit hovering over the waters of creation at the beginning of Genesis. So there's something about the spirit that takes what the sun is forming and makes it come alive. Um, and then, in, like I said, in Judges, you'll see some special activities of the Spirit in the Old Testament where um, the Spirit is seen as kind of the power of God. Uh, and to give life is also like a power that God has, right? Mm-hmm. So this is very much like in line. But you'll have the Spirit descend on someone for a time to fulfill a particular purpose in in God's plan for the world. So uh, you'll see in the Judges that God will raise up some man uh, or some woman, uh, and the spirit will fall on them and they'll, they'll, you know, be filled with the power of the Lord to do some work that the Lord has them do. So like the spirit comes on Samson and he rips down the temple. Right. Yeah. Um, but then interestingly, the spirit leaves, the spirit can leave these people. Uh, and so in the old Testament, you have this cycle where the spirit will descend in power, um, and bring the, the life and the power of God to this person so that they can fulfill a role, but then it will leave. And so there's this kind of longing in the old Testament for the time when the Holy spirit will permanently dwell with, um, God's people. Hmm. And this passage in Ezekiel is I think pointing to that in a, in a real way when the people will be finally and fully vivified and God will dwell with them, uh, permanently. Um, so in the old Testament, we do see the Holy spirit. He acts a little bit differently, but I think it's because in the old Testament, you're seeing the, the same role that the spirit plays in the new Testament, but you're seeing it as a first taste rather than a, a fulfillment or a fruition and in, in, it's in the New Testament that you get that. But again, Ezekiel 37, I think I picked mostly just because it's a, a beautiful passage, which very viscerally shows the the Spirit's role. But the Spirit is present in the Old Testament. That's something that I want to make yeah. like abundantly clear. The whole Trinity is, like yeah, if you're looking at absolutely. Even in this one passage, the Trinity shows up in a in a big way. Um, whenever you see the word Lord, right, like I was, as we discussed last week, um, the word Lord, like Jesus this is a word that applies to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the scandal of the early church was that in many places that the Jews considered the father to be speaking in the Old Testament, the Christians were like, actually, no, we think that was probably the son, like Jesus. Yeah, They did a Trinitarian reading of the Old Testament. And like, this is a big reason why many Jews persecuted and, and killed Christians. Um, and so when you're reading the Old Testament, I think actually one of the best 
practices you can do is look for the presence of not only the Father, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And you're going to, you're going to see it everywhere. I think it's in this passage. No, that's great. Yeah. That even the New Testament was written with a Trinitarian theology and it came from the Old Testament. I think that's a huge thing to realize. And so it's helpful to me, what you just talked about with Ezekiel pointing to the fact that it was written to the Israelites. Yeah. Um, but because we're kind of the, the extension, the church is the extension of, um, the story of Israel that it's about us too. Yeah. This is a point that probably needs to be like made and not just assumed real quick. But, um, yeah, I think one of the things the Christian can do is look at how God is working with his people, Israel in the old Testament, and basically map that onto, um, how God, operates in his people in the new Testament, the church, there are going to be some clear differences. The church Mm -hmm. is not a political kingdom. I mean, sure. The Vatican like is a place that has, (laughs) you know, land and representatives. So in that sense, like the Catholic church has a kind of country, but the Catholic faith is not a a political faith in the sense that it, we don't have a King and we don't have citizenship to the church in like a worldly political way. Um, Israel did very much. They were a political nation. And so like they would judge the nations with, you know, in political means with the sword or through diplomacy and that kind of thing. The Christian church is a spiritual kingdom. So when Pilate is like, you know, are you the king? Christ's like, well, my kingdom's not of this world. Yep. So we still belong to a kingdom. It's just analogous to what Israel was. It's not the exact same. But in general, the ways in which God operates and relates to his people in the old Testament, you could see is kind of pointing forward to the ways in which God wants to relate to his new people, the church. And this connection is made explicitly, I think in, in Romans nine through 11, which unfortunately gets a really bad rap for a whole different conversation, but is really a, a series of chapters where Paul is making this connection between the church and Israel, um, by exploring whether, when, uh, Israel killed Christ, if that means that God's promises to his people have failed. And he says, no, because not all Israel is Israel. The the true Israel, the spiritual Israel is a, is a, a people of God based on faith, not just on genealogical lineage or, yeah. or ethnicity. And so in that section, he's saying, no, no, the church is the true Israel. Um, and so I think that makes it so that the, the church can now take the promises of God from the old Testament and say, no, 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 these apply not just to a specific ethnicity, but to the entire world, all ethnicities, which are willing to bow knee to the King of the universe, Christ. That's great. Yeah. And even we, we didn't really hit it last week because the passage that we talked about from Peter's Pentecost sermon really picks up with talking about who Jesus is, but the portion right before, if you want to go back and, you know, read about it. You know, Peter's thing that he's doing at Pentecost first, before he talks about who Jesus is and talks about Jesus being Lord, is he says, like, to the to the crowd around them, he says, this was prophesied. You know, he uses Joel, uh, the prophet Joel, to explain, you know, like the Old Testament talks about the Holy Spirit coming back to God's people. Um, he uses Joel, but this is another one that could have been brought up in that sermon of saying, yeah. we've been waiting for the Spirit to bring life, to give life back to God's people. And this is the moment where, you know, the advocate has come like, Jesus talked about in John, or um, that's that moment. So we get to live in that kind of post-Pentecost promise and we're living it out today and we're waiting for the final version of this, but yeah, we're living in, we're living in that promise. So um, let's interact with this passage. Talk me through kind of Ezekiel 37, some points to take away. How does this Old Testament passage work for us as Christians today? So first let's talk just for a second about Ezekiel, like what Ezekiel is. Um, You know, the Old Testament is a really strangely laid out um, section of scripture. Um, you have like 
a bunch of different genres. Uh, you have the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then you have like the 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 histories of Israel. Then you have the kind of wisdom literature, the poetry of the Psalms and the Proverbs and things like this. And then you have this big section called the Prophets. Ezekiel is in the prophets. Now, what's odd about it is that Ezekiel and all of the prophets are actually taking place within the history of Israel that's recorded in um, the earlier section of the Old Testament. So, yeah, actually, so most, Kings, Chronicles. Yeah, most of what's going on in Ezekiel is happening at the very end of, uh, I think, First Kings mm-hmm. um, or Second Kings. Let me look. Anyway, <laughs> first or second Kings, 24, 25. It's, I don't remember. My favorite thing to say when I can't remember is it's in there somewhere. Second Kings, yeah. Second great, Kings, great, great, 22, great. 23. Nice. Um, short of it is uh, what happened is the, the people of God have split off into these two kingdoms and they've come under um, the dominion of Babylon, kind of the, the big bad bully mm-hmm. of the medieval world or the, the ancient world. Um Mediterranean world, ancient Mediterranean. Kind of con- com- yeah, combined there too. There you go. That's great. Um, and so they took a bunch of the people of God away from their homeland and took them out into Babylon. So Daniel is also someone who's living at the same time. Yep. So Daniel is one of the people who are, who's taken to Babylon along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his, his buds. Um, and Ezekiel's also prophesying around the same time as Jeremiah, who uh, ended up staying um, in and building in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, Daniel, these are guys who are operating within historical Israel that's recorded in the end of like Second Kings. Um, but they're performing a specific function, which is to take the message of God and declare it to the world, both his people, um, but also, you know, to Babylon too. This is something that Ezekiel was, was prophesying in Babylon. The Babylonians would have heard this. And so Ezekiel's prophesying that um, that Jerusalem's going to end up getting totally destroyed if uh, the people don't turn back to God. And shocker, they don't. And so Jerusalem gets totally destroyed. And yeah. then is the back half of Ezekiel is where Ezekiel's coming to give hope to God's people. And the the passage, because you know their their homelands destroyed, it looks like they're utterly defeated. This is probably the most traumatic event recorded in scripture to the Jewish people. Um, the Jewish people have had a, a lot of really horrific events happen to them collectively, but in scripture, this is probably the worst, the worst, the Babylonian captivity. Um, so they're like utterly downtrodden. And the Lord comes to Ezekiel with a message to give to Israel that says, look, this is what Israel is like, a valley of dead bones, but you're utterly defeated, but go and preach the word and then through that preaching, I will send the breath, the spirit, and it will reanimate these bones and make them live again. And this is meant to be a message of hope for um, Israel that they will not only come out from under the thumb of tyranny and captivity, but they will be led back to the promised land, their land. Now, how does that relate to the church? And I think sure. this is, uh, again, just back to our conversation of how you integrate the Old Testament into the life of, uh, of a Christian, which is we take that like literal story about how is Ezekiel is operating within historical Israel and um, talking about the, the literal physical places like Babylon, like actual literal captivity um, and the physical place like the promised land. All of that is true. That is what it was originally written for. But the Christian hears all of these things and gets these crazy echoes of something deeper that the New Testament unfolds for us. Just as Israel was in captivity, well, so 
is all of humanity, right? But we're not in captivity to a political nation, Babylon. We're in captivity to death, Satan, sin, mm-hmm. all of these things. And we also are like dead bones, dead bodies. Paul talks about in, in Ephesians that like we were dead in our sins. I mean, this yeah. is very much us. Um, but what has God done? He's came uh, down himself and the word has been preached and the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. And now through baptism has raised us from the dead as well um, and given us life so that we can be delivered from our captivity to Satan, death, and sin and led to the true promised land, which is not like geographic Israel, but instead the kingdom of God. So the Christian can read this story and say, yeah, this is us, right? It just applies to us in a more cosmic and spiritual sense than in this like geographic, physical, political sense. And the early church, when they read this, totally got it. Yeah. Um, the most overt uh, way to to read this is that it applies to the the final resurrection, right? So the Christian is also going to be bodily raised. There's this kind of metaphorical being raised here, where we're given new life and we're given new nature, uh, and we're you know clothed in Christ. But we're also going to get our bodies back too, right? Mm-hmm. So like at the end of history, after we die, there's going to be the general resurrection. We're going to get our literal bodies back. That was kind of how the early church adopted this passage most directly. And I think that's true. Like this is not only pointing forward to Israel being delivered, but us being literally delivered bodily from the the captivity of the dominions and the powers of this world into the kingdom of God fully. Um, but this is something we can have the first tastes of now, sure. right? Through the Holy Spirit coming and revivifying us uh, and beginning to, to undergo that process of um, leaving our old masters of sin and death and, and slavery to to, to Satan um, and entering into our uh, beginning to make that journey toward the the new promised land with the help of the spirit. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's really helpful for me, even just on a practical level, right? Because I think there may be, maybe understanding the progression of how I would experience this passage would be like my, my first reading probably isn't going to be like, you know, historical Israel. You know, my first reading is going to be like, I remember that moment when I was like in my dorm room, Mm. my freshman year reading crazy love. And I experienced that like return to God moment. I'm a pastor's kid. So it was a return to God moment. Um, (laughs) Was it actually crazy love? It was actually crazy love. Yeah. I mean, crazy love was, it was a life changing book. Crazy story about that. If you ever want to know, ask me, you know, for my, my testimony. Um, But I like remember that revivifying and the season of revivifying. Um, I love that we're using vivifying by, by the way, that's so good. It's a great word. Um, but I remember that that experience, but I also remember the experience of sin that still kind of was present. Yeah. And the sense that I, you know, I had that moment and I felt transformed and I experienced real transformation, but also I didn't experience it fully. And so there was that discouragement yep. that came of, wait, but I thought I like, you know, I, I really turned back to God. I thought yep. everything was going to be right again. And even the kind of the, the exile narrative from the old Testament, we we're exiles from Eden. You know, mm-hmm. you read that first story of Adam and Eve and they leave the garden. And so we have that felt experience of even being like, I, I was made for that, that place, that existence where everything was right. Everything was good. Everything was beautiful. And I can feel that I'm exiled from it. And I can sense that in the fact that like, I'm not who I should be. Yeah. Um, I can sense that in my brokenness. I can sense that even when I experience something beautiful and it ends, and there's something about that that longing, that coming down from the mountaintop moment where you're like, oh, I was made for more of this. Yeah. Um, and so that encouragement that not just that we have that revivifying kind of salvation moment, um, 
but even and and you know some people don't have like that visceral experience of being like I'm you know that that powerful um, thing, but even just the truth of being saved, um, you know, for the Christian is is real. Even if you were experienced salvation through baptism as a child, or you experienced salvation by turning away from the craziest of of lifestyles later on as an adult, like yeah. there's that truth of of being made alive, being um, by the giver of life. Uh, but then you even have that promise in the end that's super helpful that. It's present and future. That's, yeah. that's the crazy thing about the Bible is we experience present things, but we we hope for the future and we live with this kind of future mindset, present future. Yeah, I think actually uh, another story in the Old Testament helps kind of bring this out. This is a message of hope, right? I mean, yeah. this is not a message of, this is actually, I did it, it's over. It's like, everything's perfect now. This is a message of hope. This came to a people who was still uh, enslaved. They were still enslaved. Um, the, the Exodus is another great example of this, right? Yeah. When were they delivered from, you know, Pharaoh? Well, as soon as they got across the Red Sea, they were delivered. But like our life feels a lot like that stinking desert where we're just like sure. eating manna and we start grumbling and we start thinking like, man, eh, maybe our life was a little bit better sure, back sure, there, yeah. right? Like, oh, I thought we were going to go into this promised land. It's like, no, you got like 40 years in the desert. And I think that's kind of what our life is now. Have we been delivered? Yeah. Are we fully there? No. That's a great um, point. And being stuck in the desert can really suck sometimes. Um, but it's also the time where we become faithful so that when we do get to that promised land and we're offered to go in, we can say yes. Um, where Israel said, no, we don't. We don't want to go. We're too like scared or whatever. And so they had to wander for 40 more years. Um, but that kind of desert experience, yeah, I think that's kind of our experience now. The already, already delivered, but not yet arrived. And yeah. that's what happens here. Yeah, we've already been revivified. We have the Holy Spirit present in us, giving us new life. And that manifests in a number of ways, which we can talk about quickly in just a second. Um, but we're not fully revivified yet. Our bodies haven't been redeemed. We've not been finally raised from the dead. That yeah. will come in the future. And so I think this passage actually speaks to both of those realities. We are now raised, given new life, participating in the resurrection of Christ through our baptism, but we will also be finally raised at the final judgment at the final resurrection. Yeah. Can I give you a word? Yeah. Prolepsis. Oh. That's that's the already but not yet. That's the word for already but not not yet. So there, there you, you go. go. Our experience is proleptical. Gosh, I really w- I went for it. New Just word. Google it. You'll you'll be like, wow, this is a word. Uh prolepsis. That had that one in my yeah. Ruach and prolepsis. This is I don't know if we're keeping score, but those are my two. Um so then okay. I want to talk about the the kind of different ways that different Christians, CSF is a smattering of a bunch of different streams of the faith, Mm -hmm. but there are different ways that different Christians interact with the Holy Spirit. I've, you know, been around hyper intellectuals who are, who are very like uh, still thoughtful about the Holy Spirit, but maybe wouldn't be considered someone who's, you know, they don't, uh, there's no emotional aspect to it. And that maybe is fine. um, But maybe even like lacking in, a relational aspect of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The Holy Spirit could be more like a force than a mm. person from the Trinity. Um, but I also have been around Christians who maybe um, would place, you know, the Holy Spirit not as like, um, you know, begotten of or not begotten, but what's the proceeding? Proceeding. Thank you. Gosh, I'm yeah. a I'm a horrible creedal Christian. Um, proceeding, but not even a proceeding from the Father and Son, but actually like it's like Spirit, Father, Son is almost how the Trinity yeah. gets made. And 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 not that there's I don't know. There might be hierarchy. There might not be. That's another discussion for the Trinity, but um, almost like the Holy Spirit is God before the other persons of the Trinity. So walk me through this. How do we interact relationally that he's, that the Holy Spirit isn't a force, but we don't explode the faith into being only about the Holy Spirit. Sure. I think 
us picking that title, the giver of life, it comes from the creed, which is cool because it means that's what Christians through, you know, all ages have believed about sure. him. But I think it's also one of the best metrics or, or best matrices for matrices for viewing the Holy Spirit. The giver of life is a giver. It's a relationship, right? You're in a relationship with um, people that you give and receive from. That's a, a term that implies relationality. Mm-hmm. And so the spirit is not just some cold abstract doctrine or a thing to talk about or some kind of impersonal force that is just out there or in here that does things, but that we don't have to interact with. The picture of the Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testament is very personal. He is the very power and energy of God, which comes to live in us so that we can, by 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 working with Him, by being a co-worker, that kind of synergy, that that term of working together, which Paul uses about us, co-workers with God. By being a co-worker, a co-laborer with the Spirit, um, we come to look more like Christ. So it's a deeply personal relationship. It's the personal relationship that we have with uh, with God. He's God within us. Um, and this is also by interacting with him, I think one of the ways which we come to actually know God the most. So I think if there is kind of this really general and, you know, very unfair breakdown between kind of the the cold intellectuals and then the, like the... Sure, yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, those whatever. are polarities just to kind of, for the sake of... They're generalizations, which can be generally true sometimes, but, you know... But they can be unfair. <laughs> and, I get, be. and I get it. And I don't want to just completely actually, blast people. Yeah, and historically... The, the greatest intellectuals have also been the greatest spiritual, sure. um, um, relational, practicing Christians, right? Thomas Aquinas, probably the guy you would imagine has the coldest, you know, reasoning <laughs> voice on earth, also has the most beautiful hymns, the most beautiful devotions. Mm-hmm. Um, he even had this experience with the Holy Spirit at the end of his life that made him stop writing because it was just so beautiful. So a guy who was had deeply interwoven these sure. two aspects. So anyway. Yeah, we but, do like to pit mind and heart against each other. And the idea not. is to Well, this is the point both. I'm trying to make. Actually, by by working with the spirit, we come to know God more fully. Right. Mm-hmm. There's this really interesting under we think of knowledge as just kind of this like cold list of beliefs, right? I know I can list off the these doctrinal truths about the Trinity, so therefore I know God. And that's just like not sure. the case at all. The the scriptures present a different kind of knowledge as being a higher form of knowledge. And you know, this the the image of this is from from Genesis, right? When it says Adam knew Eve, I don't think any of us imagine that those two were sitting down over an apple or a <laughs> you know, glass of wine and talking about each other's past. Yeah. No, like when they knew Eve, they are doing a shared activity. Right. And I think that that is the kind of invitation we've been given um, with God is that the way we come to know him is by sharing in his activities, by being co-laborers centered by, do, by participating in synergy with, with the father uh, through the Holy spirit to become more like Christ. Um, that this co-working is actually how we come to know God the best. Um, and so, yeah, this dichotomy, I think is false, but you, you know, on this one sense, on this one hand, we have this, this abuse in the church of the Holy spirit that ignores him functionally or reduces him merely to a set of propositions sure. or depersonalizes him. Uh, but I think there's this other extreme, which makes the spirit, um, it abstracts the spirit from what seems to be his primary role in scripture, which is that he's commissioned by Christ to point to Christ and to revivify both the individual um, by 
sanctifying them, but it's also meant to uh, vivify the church by making it productive uh, and then vivify the world by saving it. Um, that the spirit's primary role is a, is a giver of life, but we have kind of abstracted the spirit from that role or that purpose and instead reduced him to a kind of, I don't know, thing or person that gives us these power, like superpowers that we can therefore boast about and, sure. and abuse and use. Um, and I think that that has also been a really unhealthy way of interacting with the spirit. And this isn't to say that all like charismatic or Pentecostal churches do this, they don't, but there is a, a sense in which that can become the trajectory of interacting with the Holy Spirit that can become unhealthy. And there was this early church movement called the Montanists where this, this happened, right? They emphasized the experiential aspect of living with the Spirit so much that they allowed that to eclipse the historical uh, understandings of the church. Um, and the, the real rub came when they, this group, and this was from like the 300s, so super early, um, this group said, no, 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 we're giving we're being given new words from the spirit that um, not only rub against, but can even supersede or contradict what we've been given in scripture. Right. So the spirit's telling me this and I'm going to believe that because I had this like emotive experience Um, and where that came up and rubbed against culture, they chose that emotive experience over the historic um, and authoritative delivering of what God has to say through scripture. Um, And I think, so there's, there's this danger when we make the spirit into this kind of purely experiential, uh, superpower giving, um, thing. Cause that's also not really a person. Sure. Um, and that, I think that leads to abuses, which actually can dangerously take people away from the church and can also lead to abuses of people within the church. Um, and you see this happen, you know, people with, um, sicknesses or, um, congenital defects become projects for these people just to work on. And so they get prayed for every three minutes and, you know, get assured that they're going to get healed and this stuff doesn't happen and they lose their faith because of it. I mean, this has happened. I saw a story of this last week. Sure. Um, and that's just not the understanding of the Holy Spirit that I think the scripture makes predominant. Does the spirit like give us gifts? Yeah, of course. What are those gifts for? It is for participating in the purposes of the father and the spirit is giving the gifts in some sense to vivify us, yeah. to make us more personally alive, to make the church more personally alive. Like, you know, the, the gift of prophecy is to make the church more personally alive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's for the church. Um, or gifts that help us evangelize the world and bring life to the to the world. So sure. we have that's, to understand what this is for. Yeah, that's helpful because I think I think someone who could come from maybe a more charismatic background would be like, oh my gosh, he's he's against the you know spiritual gifts. And it's yeah, like you're it's ridiculous. you're you're saying that the abuse of power that, yeah. that and like the way that you know we almost think we're special. Um, yeah. when actually like I've heard a great talk about, I think he was praying in tongues and it was by John Mark Homer. And yeah, he said, one of too. the ways to like translate uh, spiritual gifts is stuff the spirit does. Yep. And it's like, well, when you interact with the living God, things are going to happen. Yep. And so you're, you know, you, you have been given grace, but that grace doesn't make you go, I've got to lord it over people. One of my favorite passages is first Corinthians 14, one. And it's in that kind of section where he talks about spiritual gifts and he just says, make love your aim. And you lose well, yeah, that's because process. it comes immediately after first Corinthians 13. Like why at the center of a conversation about spiritual gifts 
First Corinthians 12, first Corinthians 14. Yep. Does Paul go on this entire chapter of love? Love. Yeah. Right. It is the governing ethic of all spiritual gifts because God is, is love and God is here to give us life, right? Yeah. Eternal life is what the love of God um, given to us is. And so it's the governing ethic of every spiritual gift. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we, we, ha- we have we, to fit this yeah. within kind of like a, a, a right understanding of who the spirit is and what he's meant to do because he's not just a gift giver, right? Sure. He's so a we, giver of life and he gives gifts for that end. That's great because we believe in healing that God wants to heal. And, and it's but, life. <laughs> but it's not to prove that I am a, a prayer Correct. warrior who's, who's got the gift of like, it's to, it's to show that God loves you. And it's like, I'm, I'm just the vessel of God's encouragement towards yeah. you. And, and we have all kinds of theologies about what happens when God doesn't answer prayer and God's silence. And we have we, all these other theologies that intera- interact with it. But we also believe that God is a healer, that God is the, the one who wants to bring life to the dry bones. So yeah. we interact with this. We, we deal with all the different aspects of it. So we're not anti, um, you know, the movement of the spirit, but we, nope. you know, I like to say I'm charismatic with a seatbelt. You know, that it's like, that's kind of how I want to interact, but but more so back to this passage, relationally interacting with the spirit, not having this dead kind of, yeah, he exists, but I really am more, I'm more into the father, but then not overemphasizing and making it just about this one person of a three person um, God. No, I think you summed it up really well. Okay, great. <sighs> there's, you know, there's some stress around this. Great. Well, CJ, I think we're close to being done. Do you have any final thoughts you want to toss out to our friends? Um, yeah. Final thought would just be try and make your relationship with the Holy Spirit uh, a personal thing, a daily thing. It's the same kind of relationship that you would have with another person. It requires back and forth. It requires time and it requires shared activity. And so what does that shared activity look like? How do you share activities with your friends? You talk to them, uh, you listen to them, and then you do the things that you are both called to do together, right? So if I want to hang out with Dylan, I'm going to talk about his life. He's going to talk about my life. We're going to listen to each other, and then we're going to play FIFA, right? Of course. That's how we bond. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is the same. That's my bonding. Yeah. That's how I bond. We share in an activity. Yeah. Uh, The Holy Spirit is inviting us to do the same thing, to listen, to talk. He prays along with us, groans with us in prayer. That's one of the shared activities that we have, Um, but also bringing life to other people. That is a shared activity of of the Spirit. So co-laboring with the Spirit daily, interacting with the Spirit daily is a way to help realize that the Holy Spirit isn't a force, but is a person but is also a a person on a particular mission that's been ordained and instituted by the Father um, and delivered through Christ. That's great. Yeah, so we're going to close the book on Cultivate Book 1. We've gotten through kind of our root section of who God is, Father, Lord, giver of life. Um, We're going to be moving into next week uh, talking about prayer. We're going to be using the Lord's Prayer, not as a formula of this is how you should buy rote, pray every day. That's not a bad thing. Not at all. Uh, but I we want to, to even it. pick out themes from the Lord's Prayer that Jesus, yeah. the one who knew the Father the best, prayed the best, um, gives us ways of praying. And then we're going to pull out those themes and unpack passages for those themes. So we're going to be talking about what we do in our relationship with God. But before we talk about what we do, we need to know who God is. And even specifically for this week that, you know, in our prayers, it's not us praying that is primarily what brings life to us. It's the Holy Spirit interacting with us and, and great being gracious enough to interact with us in our prayers. Um, so as we move forward, keep this week in your mind that he's the giver of life. He's the one who will bring life to us as we begin to relate to him through prayer. So 
Cool. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. See you, man.